0: Part One of The History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs from A Literary History of the Arabs by Reynold A. Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs, Part One mohammedans include the whole period of arabian history from the earliest times down to the establishment of islam in the term al-jahliyyah which was used by mohammed in four passages of the quran and is generally translated the state of ignorance or simply the ignorance Goldzahar, however has shown conclusively that the meaning attached to jahl whence jahiliyya is derived by the pre-islamic poets is not so much ignorance as wildness savagery and that its true antithesis is not ilm knowledge but rather hilm which denotes the moral reasonableness of a civilised man when mohammedans say that islam put an end to the manners and customs of the Jahaliya, they have in view those barbarous practices that savage temper by which arabian heathendom is distinguished from islam and by the abolition of which mohammed sought to work a moral reformation in his countrymen the haughty spirit of the jahliyyah Himayatul jahliyyah the tribal pride and the endless tribal feuds the cult of revenge the implacability and all the other pagan characteristics which islam was destined to overcome our sources of information regarding this period may be classified as follows one poems and fragments of verse which though not written down at the time were preserved by oral tradition and committed to writing for the most part two or three hundred years afterwards the importance of this virtually the sole contemporary record of pre-islamic history is recognised in the well-known saying poetry is the public register of the arabs al shi'ru diwanu al arab thereby genealogies are kept in mind and famous actions are made familiar some account of the chief collections of old arabian poetry will be given in the next chapter two proverbs these are of less value as they seldom explain themselves while the commentary attached to them is the work of scholars bent on explaining them at all costs though in many cases their true meaning could only be conjectured and the circumstances of their origin had been entirely forgotten Notwithstanding this very pardonable excess of zeal, we could ill afford to lose the celebrated collections of Mufadl ibn Salama, died circa nine hundred AD, and Medani died eleven twenty four AD, which contain so much curious information throwing light on every aspect of pre Islamic life. Three traditions and legends since the art of writing was neither understood nor practised by the heathen arabs in general it was impossible that prose as a literary form should exist among them the germs of arabic prose however may be traced back to the besides the proverb mathal and the oration khutbah we find elements of history and romance in the prose narratives used by the rhapsodists to introduce and set forth plainly the matter of their songs and in the legends which recounted the glorious deeds of tribes and individuals a vast number of such stories some unmistakably genuine others bearing the stamp of fiction are preserved in various literary historical and geographical works composed under the abbasid caliphate especially in the kitab al- book of songs by abul faraj of isfahan died nine sixty seven a d an invaluable compilation based on the researches of the great humanists as they have been well named by sir charles lyell of the second and third centuries after the Hijra the original writings of these early critics and scholars have perished almost without exception and beyond the copious citations in the arani we possess hardly any specimens of their work the book of songs, says ibn Khaldun, is the register of the Arabs. It comprises all that they achieved in the past of excellence in every kind of poetry, history, music, etc. So far as I am aware, no other book can be put on a level with it in this respect. It is the final source of the student of belles-lettres and leaves him nothing further to desire in the following pages i shall not attempt to set in due order and connection the confused mass of poetry and legend in which all that we know of pre-islamic arabia lies deeply embedded this task has already been performed with admirable skill by cosen de perceval in his essay sur l'histoire des arabes avant l'islamisme and it could serve no useful purpose to inflict a dry summary of that famous work upon the reader the better course i think will be to select a few typical and outstanding features of the time and to present them wherever possible as they have been drawn largely from imagination by the arabs themselves if the arabian traditions are wanting in historical accuracy they are nevertheless taken as a whole true in spirit to the dark age which they call up from the dead and reverently unfold beneath our eyes about the middle of the third century of our era arabia was enclosed on the north and northeast by the rival empires of rome and persia to which the syrian desert stretching right across the peninsula formed a natural termination In order to protect themselves from Bedouin raiders who poured over the frontier provinces, and after laying hands on all the booty within reach, vanished as suddenly as they came, both powers found it necessary to plant a line of garrisons along the edge of the wilderness. Thus the tribesmen were partially held in check, but as force alone seemed an expensive and inefficient remedy it was decided in accordance with the well-proved maxim divide et impera to enlist a number of the offending tribes in the imperial service regular pay and the prospect of unlimited plunder for in those days rome and persia were almost perpetually at war were inducements that no true bedouin could resist they fought however as free allies under their own chiefs or phylarchs in this way two arabian dynasties sprang up the ghassanids in syria and the lachmites at hira west of the euphrates military buffer states always ready to collide even when they were not urged on by the suzerain powers behind them the arabs soon showed what they were capable of when trained and disciplined in arms on the defeat of valerian by the husro shahpur i an arab chieftain in palmyra named urdhena odenathus marched at the head of a strong force against the conqueror drove him out of syria and pursued him up to the very walls of medain the persian capital two sixty five a d his brilliant exploits were duly rewarded by the emperor gallienus who bestowed on him the title of augustus he was in fact the acknowledged master of the roman legions in the east when a year later he was treacherously murdered he found a worthy successor in his wife the noble and ambitious zenobia who set herself the task of building up a great oriental empire she fared however no better than did cleopatra in a like enterprise for a moment the issue was doubtful but aurelian triumphed and the proud queen of the east was led a captive before his chariot through the streets of rome two seventy four a d these events were not forgotten by the arabs it flattered their national pride to recall that once at any rate roman armies had marched under the flag of an arabian princess but the legend as told in their traditions has little in common with reality not only are names and places freely altered zenobia herself being confused with her syrian general but the historical setting though dimly visible in the background has been distorted almost beyond recognition what remains is one of those romantic adventures which delighted the arabs of the jehaliyah just as their modern descendants are never tired of listening to the story of antar or to the thousand nights and a night the first king of the arab settlers in iraq babylonia is said to have been malik the azdite who was accidentally shot with an arrow by his son Suleymah before he expired he uttered a verse which has become proverbial u'alimmahu arramayyata kull yawmin falamma sa'idduhu ramani i taught him every day the bowman's art and when his arm took aim he pierced my heart malik's kingdom if it can properly be described as such was consolidated and organised by his son surnamed al-abrash the speckled a polite euphemism for al-abras the leprous He reigned as the vassal of Ardashir Babakan, the founder, 226 AD, of the Sasanian dynasty in Persia, which thereafter continued to dominate the Arabs of Iraq during the whole pre-Islamic period. Jadima is the hero of many fables and proverbs his pride it is said was so overweening that he would suffer no boon companions except two stars called al-farqadan and when he drank wine he used to pour out a cup for each of them he had a page adi ibn nasr with whom his sister fell in love and in a moment of intoxication he gave his consent to their marriage next morning furious at the trick which had been played upon him he beheaded the unlucky bridegroom and reviled his sister for having married a slave nevertheless when a son was born Jathima adopted the boy and as he grew up regarded him with the utmost affection one day the youthful amr suddenly disappeared for a long time no trace of him could be found, but at last he was discovered, running wild and naked, by two brothers, Malik and Akil, who cared for him, and clothed him, and presented him to the king. Overjoyed at the sight, Jadima promised to grant them whatever they asked they chose the honour which no mortal had hitherto obtained of being his boon-companions and by this title Nadmana jadhima they were known to fame Jadima was a wise and warlike prince in one of his expeditions he defeated and slew amr ibn darb ibn hassan ibn odena an arab chieftain who had brought part of eastern syria and mesopotamia under his sway and who as the name odena indicates is probably identical with odenathus the husband of zenobia This opinion is confirmed by the statement of Ibn Qutaybah that Jadima sought in marriage Zabah, the daughter of the king of Mesopotamia, who became queen after her husband. According to the view generally held by Mohammedan authors, Zabah was the daughter of Amr ibn Darb and was elected to succeed him when he fell in battle however this may be she proved herself a woman of extraordinary courage and resolution as a safeguard against attack she built two strong castles on either side of the euphrates and connected them by a subterranean tunnel she made one fortress her own residence while her sister zainab occupied the other having thus secured her position she determined to take vengeance on jadima she wrote to him that the sceptre was slipping from her feeble grasp that she found no man worthy of her except himself that she desired to unite her kingdom with his by marriage and begged him to come and see her jadima needed no urging deaf to the warnings of his friends and counsellor qasir he started from baqa a castle on the euphrates when they had travelled some distance qasir implored him to return no said Jathima. the affair was decided at baqa words which passed into a proverb on approaching their destination the king saw with alarm squadrons of cavalry between him and the city and said to qasir what is the prudent course you left prudence at Baqa," he replied if the cavalry advance and salute you as king and then retire in front of you the woman is sincere but if they cover your flanks and encompass you they mean treachery mount al assa jadima's favourite mare for she cannot be overtaken or outpaced and rejoin your troops while there is yet time jadima refused to follow this advice presently he was surrounded by the cavalry and captured qasir however sprang on the mare's back and galloped thirty miles without drawing rein when jodhima was brought to zaba she seated him on a cushion of leather and ordered her maidens to open the veins in his arm so that his blood should flow into a golden bowl O Jathima, said she, let not a single drop be lost. I want it as a cure for madness the dying man suddenly moved his arm and sprinkled with his blood one of the marble pillars of the hall an evil portent for inasmuch as it had been prophesied by a certain soothsayer that unless every drop of the king's blood entered the bowl his murder would be avenged now kossir came to amr ibn adi jadhima's nephew and son by adoption who has been mentioned above and engaged to win over the army to his side if he would take vengeance on but how cried amr for she is more inaccessible than the eagle of the air only help me said kossir and you will be clear of blame he cut off his nose and ears and betook himself to zabeh pretending that he had been mutilated by amr the queen believed what she saw welcomed him and gave him money to trade on her behalf hastened to the palace of Amr at hera and having obtained permission to ransack the royal treasury he returned laden with riches thus he gradually crept into the confidence of zaba until one day he said to her it behoves every king and queen to provide themselves with a secret passage wherein to take refuge in case of danger answered i have already done so and showed him the tunnel which she had constructed underneath the euphrates his project was now ripe for execution with the help of amr he fitted out a caravan of a thousand camels each carrying two armed men concealed in sacks when they drew near the city of zaba khasir left them and rode forward to announce their arrival to the queen who from the walls of her capital viewed the long train of heavily burdened camels and marvelled at the slow pace with which they advanced as the last camel passed through the gates of the city the janitor pricked one of the sacks with an ox-goad which he had with him and hearing a cry of pain exclaimed by god there's mischief in the sacks but it was too late Amr and his men threw themselves upon the garrison and put them to the sword Zabah sought to escape by the tunnel but kossir stood barring the exit on the further side of the stream she hurried back and there was amr facing her resolved that her enemy should not taste the sweetness of vengeance she sucked her seal ring which contained a deadly poison crying by my own hand not by amr's in the kingdoms of hera and hasan pre-islamic culture attained its highest development and from these centres it diffused itself and made its influence felt throughout arabia some account therefore of their history and of the circumstances which enabled them to assume a civilising role will not be superfluous about the beginning of the third century after christ a number of bedouin tribes wholly or partly of yemenite origin who had formed a confederacy and called themselves collectively Tanuch, took advantage of the disorder then prevailing in the arsacid empire to invade Iraq, babylonia and plant their settlements in the fertile country west of the euphrates while part of the intruders continued to lead a nomad life others engaged in agriculture and in course of time villages and towns grew up the most important of these was hera properly Al Hera, i e the camp which occupied a favourable and healthy situation a few miles to the south of kufa in the neighbourhood of ancient babylon according to hisham ibn muhammad al kalbi died eight nineteen or eight twenty one a d an excellent authority for the history of the pre-islamic period the inhabitants of hira during the reign of ardashir Babakan, the first Sasanian king of persia two twenty six to two forty one a d consisted of three classes videlichet one the tanukh who dwelt west of the euphrates between hira and anbar in tents of camel's hair two, the ibad who lived in houses in hira three the ahlaf clients who did not belong to either of the above-mentioned classes but attached themselves to the people of hera and lived among them blood-guilty fugitives pursued by the vengeance of their own kin or needy emigrants seeking to mend their fortunes naturally the townsmen proper formed by far the most influential element in the population hisham as we have seen calls them the ibad his use of this term however is not strictly accurate the ibad are exclusively the christian arabs of hera and are so called in virtue of their christianity the pagan Arabs, who at the time when Hera was founded and for long afterwards constituted the bulk of the citizens, were never comprised in a designation which expresses the very opposite of paganism. Abad means servant, est those who serve God or Christ it cannot be determined at what epoch the name was first used to distinguish the religious community composed of members of different tribes which was dominant in hera during the sixth century dates are comparatively of little importance what is really remarkable is the existence in pre-islamic times of an arabian community that was not based on blood relationship or descent from a common ancestor but on a spiritual principle namely the profession of a common faith the religion and culture of the ibad were conveyed by various channels to the inmost recesses of the peninsula as will be shown more fully in a subsequent chapter they were the schoolmasters of the heathen arabs who could seldom read or write and who it must be owned so far from desiring to receive instruction rather gloried in their ignorance of accomplishments which they regarded as servile nevertheless the best minds among the bedouins were irresistibly attracted to hera poets in those days found favour with princes a great number of pre-islamic bards visited the lachmite court while some like Nabira and abid ibn al-abras made it their permanent residence it is unnecessary to enter into the vexed question as to the origin and the rise of the lachmite dynasty at hera according to hisham ibn muhammad al kalbi who gives a list of twenty kings covering a period of five hundred twenty-two years and eight months the first lachmite ruler was amr ibn adi ibn nasr ibn Rabi'i ibn lachm the same who was adopted by Jadima and afterwards avenged his death on queen Zabah almost nothing is known of his successors until we come to nu'man the i surnamed al i'war the one-eyed whose reign falls in the first quarter of the fifth century nu'man is renowned in legend as the builder of khawarnak a famous castle near hira it was built at the insistence of the Sasanian king Yazdegerd I who desired a salubrious residence for his son Prince Bahram Gore on its completion Numan ordered the architect a Roman byzantine subject named cinemar to be cast headlong from the battlements either on account of his boast that he could have constructed a yet more wonderful edifice which should turn round with the sun or for the fear that he might reveal the position of a certain stone the removal of which would cause the whole building to collapse One spring day, so the story is told, Norman sat with his vizier in Khawarnak, which overlooked the Fenland and Najaf, with its neighbouring gardens and plantations of palm-trees and canals to the west and the Euphrates to the east. Charmed by the beauty of the prospect, he exclaimed, Hast thou ever seen the like of this? no replied the vizier if it would but last and what is lasting asked not that which is with god in heaven how can one attain to it by renouncing the world and serving god and striving after that which he hath not man it is said immediately resolved to abandon his kingdom on the same night he clad himself in sackcloth and stole away unperceived and became a wandering devotee this legend seems to have grown out of the following verses by adi ibn zayd the Abadite. consider thou khawarnak's lord and oft of heavenly guidance cometh vision clear who once rejoicing in his ample realm surveyed the broad euphrates and sadir then sudden terror struck his heart he cried shall man who deathward goes find pleasure here they reigned they prospered yet their glory passed in yonder tombs they lie this many a year at last they were likened to withered leaves whirled by the winds away in wild career the opinion of most arabian authors that norman embraced christianity is probably unfounded but there is reason to believe that he was well disposed towards it and that his christian subjects a bishop of hera is mentioned as early as four ten a d enjoyed complete religious liberty not man's place was filled by his son, Mundar, an able and energetic prince. The power of the Lachmites at this time may be inferred from the fact that on the death of Yazdegerd I, Mundar forcibly intervened in the dispute as to the Persian succession and procured the election of Bahram Gore, whose claim had previously been rejected by the priesthood. In the war which broke out shortly afterwards between Persia and Rome, Mundur proved himself a loyal vassal, but was defeated by the Romans with great loss, 421 A.D. Passing over several obscure reigns, we arrive at the beginning of the 6th century, when another Mundur, the third and most illustrious of his name, ascended the throne. This is he whom the Arabs called Mundhir ibn Ma'a as He had a long and brilliant reign, which however was temporarily clouded by an event that cannot be understood without some reference to the general history of the period about four eighty a d the powerful tribe of kinda whose princes appear to have held much the same position under the tobaas of yemen as the lachmites under the persian monarchs had extended their sway over the greater part of central and northern arabia the moving spirit in this conquest was Hujr, surnamed Akilul Morar, an ancestor of the poet Imr'ul Qais. On his death, the Kindite confederacy was broken up, but towards the year 500, it was re-established for brief space by his grandson, Harith ibn Amr, and became a formidable rival to the kingdoms of Ghassan and Hira meanwhile in persia the communistic doctrines of mazduk had obtained wide popularity among the lower classes and were finally adopted by king kawadh himself now it is certain that at some date between five o five and five twenty nine harith ibn amr the kindite invaded iraq and drove Mundhir out of his kingdom and it seems not impossible that as many historians assert the latter's downfall was due to his anti mazdakite opinions which would naturally excite the displeasure of his suzerain at any rate whatever the causes may have been mundar was temporarily supplanted by harith and although he was restored after a short interval before the accession of Anushirwan who as crown prince carried out a wholesale massacre of the followers of mazduk five twenty eight a d the humiliation which he had suffered and cruelly avenged was not soon forgotten the life and poems of imru al qais bear witness to the hereditary hatred subsisting between Lachem and kinda mundhar's operations against the romans were conducted with extraordinary vigour he devastated syria as far as antioch and justinian saw himself obliged to entrust the defence of these provinces to the Hasanid harith ibn Jabala harith al iraj in whom mundhr at last found more than his match from this time onward, the kings of Hera and Rasan are continually raiding and plundering each other's territory, In one of his expeditions, Mundr captured a son of Herath and immediately sacrificed him to Aphrodite, i.e. to the Arabian goddess Al-Uzza. But on taking the field again in 554, he was surprised and slain by stratagem in a battle which is known proverbially as the Day of Halima on the whole the lachmites were a heathen and barbarous race and these epithets are richly deserved by munther the third it is related in the irani that he had two boon companions khalid ibn al mudhallal and amr ibn mas'ud with whom he used to carouse and once being irritated by words spoken in wine he gave orders that they should be buried alive next morning he did not recollect what had passed and inquired as usual for his friends on learning the truth he was filled with remorse he caused two obelisks to be erected over their graves and two days in every year he would come and sit beside these obelisks which were called al id est the blood-smeared one day was the day of good yawm nimin and whoever first encountered him on that day received a hundred black camels. The other day was the day of evil Yomu boson, on which he would present the first comer with the head of a black polecat, the Riban, then sacrifice him and smear the obelisks with his blood. The poet Abid ibn al-Abras is said to have fallen a victim to this horrible rite. It continued until the doom fell upon a certain Handala of ta'i who was granted a year's grace in order to regulate his affairs, on condition that he should find a surety he appealed to one of Mundar's suite, Sharik ibn Amr, who straightway rose and said to the king, My hand for his, and my blood for his, if he fail to return at the time appointed. When the day came, Hanzala did not appear, and Mundar was about to sacrifice Sharik, whose mourning woman had already begun to chant the dirge suddenly a rider was seen approaching wrapped in a shroud and perfumed for burial a mourning woman accompanied him it was hansala Mundar marvelled at their loyalty dismissed them with marks of honour and abolished the custom which he had instituted he was succeeded by his son Amr, who is known to contemporary poets and later historians as Amr, son of Hind. During his reign, Hera became an important literary centre. Most of the famous poets then living visited his court. We shall see in the next chapter what relations he had with Tarafa, Amr ibn Quthum, and Harith ibn Hilliza he was a morose passionate and tyrannical man the arabs stood in great awe of him but vented their spite none the less at hira said the hab al ijli there are mosquitoes and fever and lions and amr ibn hind who acts unjustly and wrongfully he was slain by the chief of Taghlib, Amr ibn Quthum, in vengeance for an insult offered to his mother Layla. It is sufficient to mention the names of Qabus and Mundar IV, both of whom were sons of Hind, and occupied the throne for short periods. We now come to the last Lachmite king of Hira, and by far the most celebrated in tradition. Notman the third son of Mundar the fourth with the kunya name of honour abu kabus who reigned from five eighty to six o two or from five eighty five to six o seven he was brought up and educated by a noble christian family in hera the head of which was zayd ibn hamad father of the poet adi ibn zayd adi is such an interesting figure and his fortunes were so closely and tragically linked with those of no'man that some account of his life and character will be acceptable both his father and grandfather were men of unusual culture who held high posts in the civil administration under Mundar the third and his successors Zayd moreover through the good offices of a dehqan or Persian landed proprietor Faruch Mahan by name obtained from khusro Anushirvan an important and confidential appointment that of postmaster ordinarily reserved for the sons of satraps when Adi grew up his father sent him to be educated with the son of the dehqan He learned to write and speak Persian with complete facility and Arabic with the utmost elegance. He versified, and his accomplishments included archery, horsemanship, and polo. At the Persian court his personal beauty, wit, and readiness in reply so impressed Anushirvan that he took him into his service as secretary and interpreter, Arabic had never before been written in the imperial chancery, and accorded him all the privileges of a favourite he was entrusted with a mission to constantinople where he was honourably received and on his departure the Kaiser, following an excellent custom instructed the officials in charge of the post routes to provide horses and every convenience in order that the ambassador might see for himself the extent and resources of the byzantine empire adi passed some time in syria especially at damascus where his first poem is said to have appeared on his father's death, which happened about this time, he renounced the splendid position at Hera, which he might have had for the asking, and gave himself up to hunting and to all kinds of amusement and pleasure, only visiting Mada'in, Tessaphon, at intervals to perform his secretarial duties. While staying at Hera, he fell in love with Nu'man's daughter, Hind who was then eleven years old the story as told in the book of songs is too curious to be entirely omitted the want of space prevents me from giving it in full it is related that hind who was one of the fairest women of her time went to church on thursday of holy week three days after palm sunday to receive the sacrament adi had entered the church for the same purpose he espied her she was a big tall girl while she was off her guard and fixed his gaze upon her before she became aware of him her maidens who had seen him approaching said nothing to their mistress because one of them called maria was enamoured of adi and knew no other way of making his acquaintance when hind saw him looking at herself she was highly displeased and scolded her handmaidens and beat some of them adi had fallen in love with her but he kept the matter secret for a whole year at the end of that time maria thinking that hind had forgotten what passed described the church of Toma, st thomas and the nuns there and the girls who frequented it and the beauty of the building and of the lamps and said to her ask thy mother's leave to go as soon as leave was granted maria conveyed the intelligence to adi who immediately dressed himself in a magnificent gold-embroidered persian tunic yalmak and hastened to the rendezvous accompanied by several young men of hera when maria perceived him she cried to hind look at this youth by god he is fairer than the lamps and all things else that thou seest who is he she asked adi son of Zayd. do you think said hind that he will recognise me if i come nearer then she advanced and watched him as he conversed with his friends outshining them all by the beauty of his person the elegance of his language and the splendour of his dress speak to him said maria to her young mistress whose countenance betrayed her feelings after exchanging a few words the lovers parted Maria went to adi and promised if he would first gratify her wishes to bring about his union with hind she lost no time in warning no'man that his daughter was desperately in love with adi and would either disgrace herself or die of grief unless he gave her to him no'man however was too proud to make overtures to adi who on his part feared to anger the prince by proposing an alliance the ingenious maria found a way out of the difficulty she suggested that adi should invite no'man and his suite to a banquet and having well plied him with wine should ask for the hand of his daughter which would not then be refused so it came to pass no'man gave his consent to the marriage and after three days hind was brought home to her husband on the death of munther the fourth adi warmly supported the claims of no'man who had formerly been his pupil and was now his father-in-law to the throne of hera The ruse which he employed on this occasion was completely successful, but it cost him his life. The partisans of Aswad ibn Mundar, one of the defeated candidates, resolved on vengeance. Their intrigues awakened the suspicions of Nu'man against the kingmaker adi was cast into prison where he languished for a long time and was finally murdered by no'man when the Khusro, parvez son of hormuz had already intervened to procure his release adi left a son named who on the recommendation of no'man was appointed by Khosrow parvez to succeed his father as secretary for arabian affairs at the court of Ctesiphon. apparently reconciled to no'man he was none the less bent on vengeance and only waited for an opportunity The kings of Persia were connoisseurs in female beauty, and when they desired to replenish their harems, they used to circulate an advertisement describing with extreme particularity the physical and moral qualities which were to be sought after. But hitherto they had neglected Arabia, which, as they supposed, could not furnish any woman possessed of these perfections. Zayd therefore approached the Khosrow and said I know that Nu'man has in his family a number of women answering to the description let me go to him and send with me one of thy guardsmen who understands arabic the khosrow complied and zayd set out for hira on learning the object of his mission nu'man exclaimed with indignation what are not the gazelles of persia sufficient for your needs the comparison of a beautiful woman to a gazelle is a commonplace in arabian poetry but the officer accompanying Zayid was ill acquainted with arabic and asked the meaning of the word in or maha which nu'man had employed Cows said Zayd, when parvez heard from his guardsmen that no'man had said do not the cows of persia content him he could scarcely suppress his rage soon afterwards he sent for no'man threw him into chains and caused him to be trampled to pieces by elephants nor the third appears in tradition as a tyrannical prince devoted to wine women and song he was the patron of many celebrated poets and especially of nabera who was driven from hera in consequence of a false accusation this episode as well as another in which the poet Munachal was concerned gives us a glimpse into the private life of no'man he had married his stepmother mutajarrida a great beauty in her time but though he loved her passionately she bestowed her affections elsewhere was suspected on account of a poem in which he described the charms of the queen with the utmost minuteness but munachel was the real culprit the lovers were surprised by no'man and from that day Munachl was never seen again hence the proverb until munachel shall return or as we might say until the coming of the coqsa although several of the kings of hera are said to have been christians it is very doubtful whether any except Norman the third deserved even the name the lachmites unlike the majority of their subjects were thoroughly pagan no, a man's education would naturally predispose him to Christianity and his conversion may have been wrought as the legend asserts by his mentor Adi ibn Zayd. End of The History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs Part 1 by Reynold A. Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.